I'm going to uh, just stick with a handheld this morning and see if that will work for us. And would invite you, if you would, to uh, open your Bibles to Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 8, beginning at verse 26. And we will arrive there together in just a moment. Uh, as you're locating that text, let me invite you, if you would, to uh, bow your heads and uh, open your hearts and your spirits and join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for being here in this place. Thank you that uh, as we read in just a few moments about the presence of your Holy Spirit guiding and directing the, the steps of human beings, that, that same Holy Spirit present in the story that we're about to read uh, is present here with us in our um, current reality. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being here to guide and direct our steps and to uh, inhabit our worship and to uh, listen to our prayers. Thank you for the ways that you inspire us to be people of God. Help us to listen, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in a uh, little series at the beginning of the year. Tammy pointed out to me that it has become something of an unconscious tradition of mine to begin with our vision and mission uh, at the beginning, beginning of each year. And so here we are. Uh, talking about the vision of Midland Reformed Church. Uh, let me uh, just be really clear. It's in the bullseye there on the screen, loving God, loving neighbor, leading change. That's the vision of this church. So if you would just turn to somebody and say that out loud to them, loving God, loving neighbor, leading change. Go ahead and do that right now. All right. You know the vision of our church, right? Uh, and, and here's what I want to say about that. Number one, it's really important to know the vision of our church. Uh, not only because it helps us as an organization, uh, as a community, but because I believe, and I believe uh, Scripture teaches us, that vision is important for God's people. So vision uh, includes two things. Number one, it is uh, what we're looking at, and it's also what we're looking through. So vision is what we're looking at, and when we look at Jesus, we see uh, these components of our vision embodied right? Lived out. This is who Jesus was. Jesus was a person who loved God and served God and obeyed God and had fellowship and communion with God. Jesus said over and over again uh, that he would withdraw by himself and just have some uh, communion with the person of God, right? Just enjoying the presence of God. And Jesus uh, said that he would never say anything unless it was something that God was telling him to say. And he would never do anything unless it was something that God was telling him to do. Uh, that's the description of somebody who loves God. And so last week we talked about the fact that loving God for us means that we love God for God's own sake. Loving God uh, does not mean that, uh, God's, that God becomes an instrument uh, to some greater end in our life, right? That there's no instrumentality, that there's, there's, there's no duality in our, in our heart, that I don't love God as long as or so that he can give me the good life or give me the things that I really want. God isn't a means to the end. God is the end. God is the creator. God is uh, on the throne. God reigns over all of the universe and over all of the universes. God is God. He's not our butler. And so Jesus uh, exhibits that reality of loving God with all of his heart and mind and strength and soul. That's loving God. We look at Jesus. That's what we see. And loving our neighbor uh, is the way that Jesus lived his life. Jesus loved his neighbor in ways that were messy and complicated, and we're going to talk about that today. 
it's easy for us to talk about loving our neighbor, right? Nobody in this room would say, I don't, well, maybe some of you would, um, uh, I don't love my neighbor, or I will not love my neighbor. I'll not, I won't even try to love, right? We all know intuitively that when we raise our hand and sign up to be a follower of Jesus, at some level we're saying, I will also uh, not only follow Jesus and love Jesus, but I'm also signing up. I understand implicitly, intuitively, that I'm also saying something about the kinds of relationships that that's in, uh, uh, connecting me to, that I will also love my neighbor. And, and loving my neighbor, as we're going to see today, uh, invites us into places that are hard and messy and challenging and not just sentimental. Uh, we're not just talking about love your neighbor uh, if you feel good and if your neighbor creates warm feelings for you. Loving our neighbor is not the same thing as loving the way that my neighbor makes me feel. Loving my neighbor is not just the same thing as, as enjoying being around people who are just like me. It's messier than that. So what we're going to see today in just a couple of minutes is when, 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 we're, when, we, when we respond to the invitation to love our neighbor, it will not just simply be up to the end of what's easy or feels good. And many, many of us, many, many of us come to that line and we quickly start excluding people from the list of who is my neighbor. So loving my neighbor, this is what we see Jesus do. And Jesus makes people upset all the time for loving the wrong sorts of people, doesn't he? And then leading change. Jesus provoked change in individual lives, in small communities. Think of the change that Jesus provoked when he showed up uh, in, the, um, in the community of the woman at the well. Do you remember what happened? This, this outcast at the well responds to Jesus' message, embraces him as the Messiah, and she goes and she begins to preach and teach and proclaim this message among her community. The community is changed. Jesus provokes change in individuals and communities and throughout institutions and organizations, and the world is still experiencing the ripples of change that began with the ministry and the presence of Jesus in this world. So loving God, love, uh, loving neighbor, and leading change. When we look at Jesus, that is the vision that we see. This is the life that Jesus lived. Uh, and then it's what we look through, right? Jesus said that the, the, the two most important things that we can do are to love God and to love our neighbor. Those, are, those two commandments encapsulate the character, the law, the intentionality of God. And so whenever we're determining a course of action, whenever we're evaluating who we will be or what we will do, we look at the circumstances through the lens of, is this, does this help me to love God? Is this exhibiting love of God? Does this help me to love my neighbor? Is this exhibiting love of neighbor or not? It's the lens that I look through all of the rest of my life at. And then the Great Commission, right? The very last thing that Jesus tells his followers to do before his ascension back into heaven is what? He says, go into all of the world and teach them to be my disciples, right? Baptizing them and teaching them to be my disciples. That teaching process is a process of transformation. It's, in, it's provoking change, growth, new life among those that will come to follow Jesus. So loving God, loving neighbor, leading change, vision of the church. It's what we look at and it's what we look through. It's important for us to know that. So having said all of that's preamble, that's all just introduction. I haven't even started page one yet, believe it. 
So turn, turn to somebody else now and say the same thing again. Loving God, loving neighbor, leading change. Go ahead. All right. So now let's pick up the speed just a little bit. So that's our vision. We're on number two today, loving my neighbor. And the question, the question immediately comes up, who then is my neighbor and how do I love them? Right? If you're a thinking person, if you're here today uh, and you say, I'll sign up for that, I'll love my neighbor, and then you're gonna, then you will want to know some details, right? It's always in the details. Who is my neighbor? Who, who am I required to love? And how do I have to love them? What does that mean? And so we want, we want to answer those two questions today. We want to at least add some. We want to add some to the answer to those two questions today. This is a, it's a long, uh, never-ending conversation. Uh, who is my neighbor and how do I love them? We often, when we ask that question, we'll look at the story where Jesus is asked precisely that question, right? Remember the story, right? Uh, the, um, the, the, the lawyer confronts Jesus uh, and says, who is my neighbor? What does that look like? And Jesus tells the story. Who? What's the story? Good Samaritan, right? And the Good Samaritan is an unlikely person. And Jesus tells the story of somebody who is in need. And, and, and uh, the person who is in need is who your neighbor is. Right, so uh, if you're if you see somebody who is in need and you're in a position to meet that need, uh, you have just met your neighbor. That's what Jesus says. So uh, so we've done that. We've plowed that ground. We've thought through that. And what I what I was interested in, I wanted to know if there were any other places where uh, the idea of what it looks like to love a neighbor uh, uh, comes into the picture. Are there other stories that can help us to reflect on uh, identifying and loving our neighbor? And as, as I was uh, thinking and praying and reflecting about that, uh, I came across this story in Acts chapter 8. And I want to look at that with you for a minute. I'll um, think about this encounter on another road uh, between two unlikely uh, individuals. Here's the story. Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? You braved the ice conditions and, the, and snowmageddon and all the rest of it. And you're going to hear about a eunuch today, all right? So buckle up. As uh, for, as for Philip, uh, verse 26, an angel of the Lord said to him, go south down the desert road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so he did, and he met the treasurer of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under the queen of Ethiopia. The eunuch had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and he was now returning. Seated in his carriage, he was reading aloud from the book of the prophet Isaiah. The Holy Spirit said to Philip. So the Holy Spirit is guiding this whole project, right? The whole encounter, the Holy Spirit is in this. This isn't random. This isn't Philip making things up as he goes. The Holy Spirit said to Philip, go over and walk along beside the carriage. Philip ran over and heard the man reading from the prophet Isaiah. So he asked, do you understand what it is that you're reading? And the man replied, how can I when there is no one to instruct me? And he begged Philip to come up into the carriage and sit with him. The passage of scripture he had been reading was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. As a lamb is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. He was humiliated and received no justice. Who can speak on his descendants? for his life uh, was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, was Isaiah talking about himself or someone else? And so Philip began with the same scripture and then used many others 
to tell him the good news about Jesus. And as they rode along, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, there's some water. Why can't I be baptized? He ordered the carriage to stop, and they went down into the water. And Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away. The eunuch never saw him again, but, was on, but went on his way rejoicing. Meanwhile, Philip found himself further north at the city of Azontus. He preached the good news there in every city along the way until he came to Caesarea. And we'll ask God to bless this reading, his holy, inspired word. Amen. So who is my neighbor? Who is this eunuch? Some things that we need to know about this individual. First of all, um, this, this uh, eunuch is a high official in the Ethiopian government. Um, um, the Luke describes him in Acts as basically the secretary of the treasury. So this is a person who has a lot of responsibility and a lot of authority uh, on, on the one hand. Uh, secondly, we also know that this person uh, is a worshiper of Yahweh. Luke in Acts here tells us that the Ethiopian is on his way back from worshiping uh, at the temple. So this, this individual had been at the temple in Jerusalem and had gone there not just as a tourist, not just an, uh, as an official, but this individual went there to worship, went to worship in the temple. And, and what we would know, and what everybody who read this story would know, is that if you were an Ethiopian uh, and you went to Jerusalem to worship, uh, you would have had a very uh, mixed experience. Uh, so there's this very mixed experience. On the one hand, uh, he's included. On the one hand, he is drawn to worship this God of Israel, the God of Israel, uh, who has proclaimed himself to be not just Israel's God, but uh, the God of creation, the God of the universe. He's drawn to worship this God somehow. Uh, we don't know exactly, but somehow he came to believe in and trust in uh, and seek out the wisdom of this Yahweh. And that was not unusual. Uh, it, it wasn't common, but it wasn't unusual. The Hebrew people had a number of various categories uh, for foreigners to come and to worship and to join their faith. Uh, for example, um, if you were not born a Hebrew, you could become a God-fearer. And a God-fearer is a sort of technical category of somebody who has not been circumcised, right? And think about that, right? Uh, but you uh, come to uh, uh, follow the laws and the rituals and the customs of Judaism. So this is a so likely this individual is at least a God-fearer, right? So uh, a category of people who can come and join and adhere to uh, the, the the faith of Israel, uh, but not um, but not fully. And that's the, that's, that's the other piece of the, the experience for this individual. He's drawn to Yahweh. He's, he comes to worship. He's allowed to come close, but never to belong. He'll never be in. He's prevented but, uh, from getting too close to God. And so every visit to the temple is a reminder that he cannot belong. Uh, we've talked a number of times here about the temple in Jerusalem. And the temple in Jerusalem is 
organized in sort of concentric layers, and each layer is designed to filter out a swath of the population. And so the ancient historian Josephus describes four courts in this temple. The outer court is a court that is open to all people. Foreigners are, are included. Uh, everybody is included. Um, the only people, Josephus says, that can't even come into the outer courts are women who are menstruating. The second court is open to all Jews. If you're Jewish, male or female, as long as you're not unclean, as long as you're not menstruating, you can go into this, this secondary court. So foreigners, in, in other words, you, right, unless you're Jewish, foreigners stop at the outer court. And then men and women together can move into the, the, the second court. It's open to all Jews. And then the third court in, the next court in, is only open to what? Males, right? So now we've filtered out um, Gentiles and females. And now it's only males. And then the next court in, the fourth court, is limited to only what? It's priests, right? Only the priestly class. And then only if they are robed in their vestments. So the priests can go to the fourth court if they're robed, if they're in their vestments, if they're purified. And then the sanctuary is only for the ruling priest, and the Holy of Holies is only for the high priest, and then only once in a year, right? And so this eunuch has come to Jerusalem to worship, but stands six layers away from God, filtered out times six. Can never get closer, will never get closer. In addition to these sort of routine exclusions that are built into the architecture of the temple, uh, this court official in the chariot uh, endures yet another level of separation. Uh, and, that, uh, and that is that because he is a eunuch, uh, he is always held at a distance. Uh, even the writings of the law that this Ethiopian has come to embrace in his worship of Yahweh mark out special exclusions for eunuchs. And so Deuteronomy 23 is a very graphic verse. Uh, here's the abridged version. This is abridged. If you want to see it full on, De Deuteronomy 23.1. No man with crushed testicles or whose male organ is cut off may come into the assembly of Yahweh. It's a eunuch. All right? So this is the eunuch. And he's excluded uh, on the basis of his genitalia. So, so what do we know about this person? Who is the neighbor? He's a high court official. He has authority. He has power. Uh, secondly, he's a foreigner. He's Ethiopian. Next, we know he's a worshiper of Yahweh, drawn to the temple, comes to worship, goes out of his way to worship, Thirdly, we know he's profoundly excluded, both by his gender or lack of it and by his nationality, two categories that remove him. And the fourth thing that we know, Luke tells us, he's reading Isaiah. Particularly, he's reading uh, uh, from a text in Isaiah that is describing the Messiah, and he's reading these words, these words 
in the context of all of that become very poignant, don't they? Listen, look at these words. He said, in his humiliation, justice was taken from him. Who can describe his descendants? For his life was taken away from the earth. Humiliation. Justice taken from him. Will never father a child. This passage moves the Ethiopian treasurer because it's describing his life. It's describing his own experience. And Philip approaches, hearing this reading of the prophet Isaiah. And Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? What questions do you have? And the man said, I ask you, who is he writing about? Who is he writing about? About himself or someone else? See what he's wondering? Is it possible that somehow this prophet Isaiah is able to connect to my own experience of being humiliated and excluded? Is it possible that Isaiah sees me? And Philip responds and teaches him about the promises of Isaiah and then through other points of Scripture, which at this point are the Old Testament Scriptures. And he uses all of the Scriptures to point this man to Jesus. That Jesus is ultimately the one that Isaiah is writing about. So the Ethiopian asked Philip, who is explicitly sent by God, whose steps have explicitly been guided by the Holy Spirit. He says, is there any reason that I shouldn't be baptized? Given the fact that Jesus seems to know the humiliation and the injustice and the exclusion and the rejection that I experience every time I go to the temple, is it possible that I could stand with Jesus? Is it possible that I could be identified with him? What's he asking? He's not just saying, uh, you know, do you have time to stop here a minute to, to do baptism? I know, I mean, do, is it convenient for you? There's water, I'm here, you're here. It seems like it would all work out. Is it okay if we just run down there and do this a minute? He's not asking about convenience. Friends, hear the cry of this man's heart. Hear what he is asking. He's not just saying, do you have time? Is it convenient? But he is saying, can I belong? Can I come in from the outer rings? Can I belong? I'm neither male nor female, but just as I am. Uh, not born a Hebrew, a foreigner. Layers removed from God. Can I belong? Is there anything that would prevent me from being baptized? And Philip could have said, actually, friend, yes, there is. I love you, but there's this text in Deuteronomy. And this text in Deuteronomy says that if you are a eunuch, you're excluded. Philip could have responded that way. He could have said, you can never come into the presence of God. You can never participate in the assembly of God's people. But Philip 
has a different hermeneutic. It's a different way of interpreting Scripture. Hermeneutic. You have one and I have one. Hermeneutic is a fancy word that just simply means my lens, my assumptions, my methods for understanding Scripture. Nobody comes to Scripture without a hermeneutic, a way of understanding the Bible, a way of reading the Bible. We all do it. And Philip has a hermeneutic. And his hermeneutic says, there's a challenge here. There's a tension here in the text. There's a tension between what Deuteronomy says in the law and what Isaiah seems to say. He lets Isaiah register. He says Deuteronomy is important, but it isn't all important. See, that's a part of a hermeneutic. He lets Isaiah 56 register in his thinking. Isaiah 56, just three chapters down the road, from the text that the uh, Ethiopian is reading in the uh, chariot, Isaiah 53, and then same scroll, Isaiah 56, says this. And, And do not let the foreigner who joins himself to Yahweh say, surely Yahweh will separate me from his people. And then this. And do not let the eunuch say, look, I am a dry tree. For thus says Yahweh, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, and choose that in which I delight and who keep hold of my covenant, and I will make them a monument and a name in my house and within my walls. Better than sons and daughters, I will give him an everlasting name that will not be cut off. It's fascinating, isn't it, that this is from the same scroll that the eunuch is reading from. Most scholars believe that's intentional on Luke's part. They believe that the reason that Luke has included this story here in Acts at this moment with the chariot and Philip and the Holy Spirit is that this is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. That in Jesus and in the Spirit, this prophecy of Isaiah 56 is coming true. That gender identity and national identity are no longer relevant to belonging. For the people of God. Speaking of Jesus, Philip's hermeneutic, his interpretation uh, of what God might be up to here, also includes Jesus' own teaching about eunuchs. Did you know Jesus addresses this back in Matthew 19? This is what Jesus has to say. They're discussing marriage and divorce, and who will you be married to in heaven? Remember the conversation? What are the grounds for divorce? And the disciples said to him, if this is the case of a man with his wife, it would be better not to marry. Has anybody ever said that? It would be better not to marry. But he said to them, no, nobody's ever said that. He said to them, not everyone can accept this thing, but to those to whom it has been given. And he says this, for there are eunuchs who are born as such from their mother's womb. Jesus is acknowledging a class of human beings who are born as eunuchs. There are people who are born as such. 
or eunuchs who were made eunuchs by other people. Probably this Ethiopian eunuch serving in the temple, in the courts of uh, the queen, the treasury of the queen, was uh, likely castrated uh, as a part of uh, assuming his duties. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Philip hears that, lets it register. He hears Deuteronomy. He hears Isaiah. He hears Jesus. He hears the eunuch's question. He's been listening to the Holy Spirit all along. He understands the weight of this moment. He baptizes the man. He performs this act of radical inclusion. Sometimes we talk about baptism as though it's uh, fairly routine. Right? We do baptisms here. We go to a swimming pool. We do a baptism. Baptisms happen. It's like a ceremony. The significance of baptism is that this eunuch, this Ethiopian foreigner, jumps to the head of the line. It's not just that he gets to suddenly go from the outermost court, one more court in, or two more courts in, or three more courts in, or four more courts in, or into the sanctuary. In baptism, he goes right to the altar. In baptism, he goes right into the presence of God, the Holy of Holies. The curtain has been ripped asunder. And he, even he, is welcome. The story of the Good Samaritan shows us love enacted to care for the physical needs of another. The story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch shows us a picture of love enacted and orchestrated, in fact, by the Spirit to care for the emotional belonging needs of another. So in this text, who is my neighbor? The one who is excluded. The one who is walled out by custom, architecture, preference, design, status. My neighbor. The one that belongs to God. And what does love look like? Welcome, inclusion, and radical belonging. Now, the story pushes buttons for us, doesn't it? I get that. The story pushes buttons because it surfaces for us two hot topics that are a part of a lot of church conversations, and rightly so. Two hot topics. One hot topic is uh, the whole arena of gender, um, gender issues, gender identity, whether you're talking about GLBTQ or Me Too 
how is it possible that loving neighbor can happen in the context of an accuser and a victim? Do we have room for both in the family of God? Do perpetrators and victims live side by side? Is it possible? Women in office, for some of us, the experience of seeing several women ordained and installed in the office today, uh, it's troubling. I get that. Gender issues, push our buttons. And then physical borders, push our buttons. Physical boundaries, building walls. Who gets to be behind the walls and who's kept on the other side of the wall? Who gets to come in? When we think about loving my neighbor, when we say that love looks like welcome and inclusion and radical belonging, I want to acknowledge that that doesn't solve any problems. It doesn't answer any questions. It doesn't get us off the hook for doing hard thinking and good work. But, but it does prevent us from settling for overly simplistic readings of Scripture. And it does prevent us from simply writing somebody off because they're challenging to us. Loving others is the lens that I look through. Loving my neighbor. Radical inclusion, belonging, welcome. Loving our neighbor is not easy. It will push our buttons. It will make us uncomfortable. It will force us to think and work. But it's important. Because there's eternal significance attached. We are not just saved to Jesus, but we are saved together. And we belong not just to Jesus, but we belong to one another. Let us love as he loved us. Would you pray with me, please?